Welcome to the Sifted podcast, supported by our sponsors Zendesk for Startups and recorded at Dream Factory, the content creation house for startups. I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor, and it is my great pleasure to welcome a special co-host for today's episode, Ana Kelly. Amy is away this week in Paris, so we're having Ana on the show. Ana, do you want to give a quick intro? What do you do at Sifted? Sure, thank you, Eleanor. I'm, I'm very happy to be the Robin to your Batman today. So I'm contributing editor. I help write and edit our monthly reports. We have some fun reports coming up. We've got one looking at agricultural tech. So any farmers out there among the listeners, hold tight. We're, we're going to cover your area. Uh, we, we're also quite likely to do a report on Greek tech in the near future. I really hope we do. I want to go to Greece. That sounds very opportunistic, Aina. <laughs> So for those of you who are maybe new to Sifted and new to our podcast, Sifted is the Financial Times-backed publication that covers European tech and startups and VC. Every week, we use this podcast to give a peek inside the Sifted newsroom and talk about top news coming out of Europe's tech and startup sector and talk to our journalists who are actually on the ground covering it all. Aina, what are we going to be talking about today? So today, we're going to be talking about the latest in Startup Europe news, We'll be talking to John Thornhill. He's Sifted's co-founder and he's the FT's innovation editor. We're going to talk to him about being an older entrepreneur. We'll also be chatting with journalist Kai Nichols-Swartz, who will be discussing fashion's big old carbon footprint problem and the startups trying to fix it. And Kai's also going to be talking about another interesting topic for us, some of the horror stories that our readers have from dealing with VCs. So I'm excited to get into that juicy stuff in a little bit. All right. So Eleanor, what can you tell us about what's happening in the world of news this week, Eleanor? We've had a couple of investment stories that I thought were quite interesting. Do you want to start with the Creator Fund? Tell us about that. Tell us why it's significant. Yeah, totally. So we had a couple of interesting fund raises, i.e. VCs raising funds in Europe. The first one was Creator Fund, which is out of the UK, which is looking to back companies that are coming out of universities. Uh, so research teams that are turning their research and their innovation and discoveries into hopefully successful businesses. I've heard various anecdotes over the years about how spinheads have a difficult time extricating themselves from, from universities, that universities typically like to take a big stake in these companies, which can have a knock-on effect on these companies later when they're trying to raise money with investors. And the consensus seems to be that the American way of doing this is a bit savvier, a bit better. Is this still the case, do you think? So I think it's a little bit more complicated and nuanced than that. So yes, you know, a lot of people talk about these tech transfer offices at universities, which are basically organizations that help commercialize and create businesses out of research that's coming out of these universities. People talk a lot about them taking large stakes in the businesses, which makes it difficult when investors down the line also want to come in at later stages. And then the cap table can get a little bit messy when you've got, you know, 25 or even 30% taken up by the university. But actually, if you talk to people at universities, the range of the stakes that they take is extremely large. And, you know, some it's 10% and then some it's really large. So that is an issue. But of course, there's like other stuff that make it really difficult for 
these university spin-outs to become successful businesses. Most of the people that are founding them don't have commercial expertise, right? So when you're scaling this business, yes, you've got the incredible IP, the incredible innovation, but then you also need to hire a team to sell the product and find customers, right? And that can be extremely difficult for founders that are not necessarily used to running a business. They're used to working in a research lab. So there's lots of things that are wrapped up in, in why it's complicated to scale these businesses. But we are seeing more VC funds in Europe back these kinds of businesses. Um, so there was one that was launched by Early Bird last year. And then, of course, there is this creator fund that we wrote about this week. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit more about how this fund is going to invest its money? Can you give us some examples of kinds of businesses that they're hoping to back? Yeah, totally. So I think one thing that's really interesting about this fund is that they are leveraging kind of student investors. So the investing team is made up of about 38 mainly PhD students on the ground across 28 universities in the UK, right? So these people might not be professional VCs, but they are put through a training program that teaches them everything they need to know about investing. And obviously, they have a much better ability to do due diligence on these extremely technical ideas than someone that's more of a generalist investor. So I think that's super unique. Speaking of like due diligence and the kind of complicated stuff that this fund has invested. So in the past, they've invested in, for example, a life sciences startup out of Imperial College called Base Immune that's developing mutation-proof vaccines. They've invested in a company based out of Edinburgh called TouchLab, which is developing electronic skin for robots. So machines could actually have the power of human touch, which I think is really, really crazy. So this is like super futuristic stuff. Wow. I never thought machines needed human touch. Maybe they do. Maybe that would help break down the boundaries between man and machine a little bit more. Well, I hope when it happens that you can give them a hug, Anya. (laughs) Me too. So this wasn't the only deep tech story we had on the site this week. We had another investor story about a fund. This one was focused on Southern Europe and Latin America. The fund is called Leadwind. And apart from involving quite a chunk of money, what's significant about it, Eleanor? Yeah, so this fund was raised by the Madrid-based VC firm K-Fund. They're very well known in the scene, but this fund that they recently closed is the largest growth fund in Southern Europe. And it's got backers, their LPs like Telefonica, BBVA, so, you know, huge corporate names. And I guess kind of what is notable about it is that we've seen across the European tech ecosystem that European tech companies are able to raise larger sums of money and stay private for longer. So it's great to see this happening in an ecosystem that's traditionally not been as mature as places like France or Germany or the UK. So it's really a sign that Southern Europe is also stepping up. And then also what's interesting is that their last funds were generalist, so kind of sector agnostic. But with this fund, they're actually going to focus on deep tech, something that Southern Europe wasn't super great at in terms of company creation. And they're also investing in Latin America, saying that they're going to help startups from the region relocate to Europe. Should European founders be worried about this? No, I actually think that's really great. I feel like sometimes the whole big focus for a lot of founders coming from other regions is, oh, let's just go into the United States, right? That's like a huge market. But Europe is also a really, really big market. And so it's a great thing that founders are waking up to that opportunity there. Obviously, there's also linguistic affinity, right? And we do see Spanish startups, for example, going into LATAM. And we've seen some examples of that going the other way. So I think it makes a lot of sense. 
So I feel like when we think about startup founders, we have this image in our head of someone that's dropped out of university at 19, they're wearing a hoodie, and they're in some sort of co-working space drinking long black after long black, building a business on their laptop. But we had a great piece this week on Sifted from one of our freelancers, Naomi Ackerman, that pointed out very rightly that this is very far from the truth and that there is definitely ageism towards older founders and that there are actually a lot of founders that are older than kind of the image we have in our heads. A 2020 report that she cited in her article said that the most successful U.S. startups, so that means those who are in the top 0.1% in growth in their first five years, were launched by founders with an average age of 45. So that definitely doesn't fit our perception. And a 50-year-old entrepreneur is almost twice as likely to create a high-growth startup than a 30-year-old rival, researchers have found. So to get inside the mind of founders who aren't those 19-year-old wonderkins, we thought who better to bring on the show than our very own co-founder, John Thornhill. Don't worry, John, I'm not going to ask you how old you are. But you recently wrote an article for the FT talking about some lessons you've learned from founding Sifted. Can you talk a little bit about that? Did you face any ageism? How has the experience been? Yes, I thought that Naomi Ackerman article was really interesting. And I kind of thought, you know, all these founders in their 40s, they're so young. Uh, I mean, try doing it in your 50s. And what resonated with that article with me in particular was that the older you get, I find the more humble you get, the more you realize that you don't know everything, which is not something you always think about when you're younger. The main lesson that I learned from uh, kind of co-founding Sifted is that um, you're not trying to do everything yourself. Your main purpose is trying to enable other people to do things. And I think that's something that becomes easier with age because you just don't have uh, as much arrogance in a way or perhaps not as much energy. So I guess in keeping with that, your relationship with your co-founder, Casper, has also been super important. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe, yeah, how you and Casper have worked together to build the business? Yes. Yeah, so I've been a journalist for more than 30 years and think I know uh, what goes on in editorial. But I very quickly realized that I didn't know very much about running and building a startup. And so I teamed up with a friend of mine who I had known from Moscow. Uh, he was in Moscow building a crisp factory for PepsiCo. And I was a journalist for the FT there. And Casper had then subsequently did a number of startups, including Halo, the taxi app, which was a very successful startup, and had done a number of other startups as well, and really understood the whole life cycle of a startup business, uh, how you launch it, how you scale, and then how you move on in that process. So I thought I could play the role of coming up with the idea, seeing what the content and data was that we needed to produce, and Casper could kind of weaponize that idea and run with it. And so far, I think we've done okay. But I guess it's also a little bit on the team as well, too. And I thought that was really amazing how in the piece you talked about how important that was hiring good people, but also, you know, how difficult it is when you end up hiring the wrong person. No, I mean, I think the most critical thing uh, in launching any business is getting those early evangelists uh, who really understand what you're about and can take your idea and run with it. And I remember it was a very um, impactful moment for me when I was at a meeting with one of our reporters who explained the whole idea of Sifted a lot better than I could have done. And I thought that was a kind of wonderful transformative moment that something that we had given birth to had then grown up and taken steps on its own. But in a way, you can't afford to carry people as well for too long who don't um, get 
what you're about. And as a big company, you can carry people in a way that you simply can't as a startup. And that's not because the people that you always hire are necessarily bad people. They're not they're always kind of smart and decent people. But a lot of people don't necessarily adapt to that incredibly freewheeling, haphazard, somewhat anarchic environment, which is inevitable when you're trying to start something new. I also thought kind of coming back to the point you made about humbleness, John, and, and not knowing everything. You had a funny anecdote in the article about one time when an employee flat out told you that you were wrong about something. Yes. Well, in that piece, I wrote that um, I had wanted to call the site Cludge, which seemed to me quite a good name for a tech site as a kind of quick and dirty workaround, which is what we were trying to do in a way. But Amy Lewin, who is our first employee, now our editor, who's, as you know, Elena, is not short of strong opinions, uh, told me this is a terrible idea. And I think most other people think it was a terrible idea as well. So we didn't go with that name. But I think that was a good example of, I think, the culture that we have created at Sifted is incredibly challenging. Um, I don't think we believe in hippo or that the highest placed person's opinion always prevails. We want to kind of sift ideas on the, their own individual merits. And so anyone in the team can come up with good ideas. And if they're good and the rest of us like them, we'll run with them. Aina, did you want to ask anything about the article to John? Yes. John, could you tell us a little about the VC process? You pointed out that Sifted is perhaps not a typical VC-backable business. And did you ever encounter or detect ageism from investors? Yeah, well, media is not really uh, in the hot spot or the sweet spot for a lot of VCs. For some reason, VCs don't seem to think it's going to generate a hundred thousand times return. And so we talked to a lot of VCs about kind of funding early on. And certainly we strongly got the strong message that we were never likely to return their fund and therefore they weren't particularly interested in investing in us, even though they absolutely saw the value in what we were trying to do and would love to read us and support us in other ways as well. They were also quite intrigued by the fact that we were a couple of uh, older founders and thought, particularly given that so much of startup world is focused on the young, whether we were the right people to kind of be attuned with the community that we were writing about. But I think, as you have shown, our model has been to hire people who absolutely do swim in this world, understand this world instinctively. And so, you know, we have, as on this call, we have some brilliant 30-something journalists who are capable of really kind of resonating with this world. So I think there was some suspicion about being older founders, but I think they understood that uh, we were going to create a team that really swam in the world in which we were writing about. Thank you, John. And I'm looking forward to see you write a follow-up to the piece, I don't know, in like two years or three years when Sifted has grown even more. My pleasure. Thanks, Anna. This podcast is brought to you by Zendesk for Startups. Zendesk helps startups build lasting customer experiences from day one. With the Zendesk for Startups program, startups get Zendesk customer support software for free for six months. You'll get access to expert advice and a community of founders and CX experts to help you build the foundation for long-term growth. Learn more and claim your six months free at zendesk.com forward slash sifted. So for our final segment today, we have our reporter, Kai Nichols Schwartz, in the podcast studio with me to talk about two interesting stories that he's been working on in the past week. The first of which is an eagerly anticipated story about VC horror stories. So we chatted to some of our readers about the crazy things that they've experienced when they've raised money from VCs. So Kai, tell us a little bit about like what you heard from founders. 
Yeah, well, we asked founders about the worst things that they'd experienced when they were raising cash from investors. We asked them about some of the advice they would have for other founders going through a similar sort of thing, and some of the biggest lessons that they'd learned. And a load of founders talked about the arrogance of VCs when they were trying to raise money, people turning up late to meetings, openly yawning during pitching sessions. And one particular story that caught my eye was someone saying that a VC actually pretended to fall asleep during a pitch, which that's, is pretty crazy. That's super crazy. So what did people tell us about the lessons they learned or maybe advice they had for founders who are going through the process themselves? Yeah, well, one of the questions that we asked founders was how would they or what would they advise people to do if they were going through a fundraise? And a number of a number of things came through. Firstly, founders said that you can just spend way too much time pitching to the wrong VCs and holding out hope from people who are just obviously ignoring you or, or going to ghost you. Others said that you just need to not take it so personally. And others said it is well worth building up your network of VCs before you're even going to consider raising money. But we also heard a number of people say, you've just got to forget about investing and bootstrap. Wow. I guess VC really isn't the only game in town anymore. But Kai, you're also working on a couple of these interesting community journalism projects. So, you know, projects and articles where we actually go out to our readers and ask them for input, and then that becomes the basis for our reporting. Can you talk about a couple other ones that are coming up? Yeah, that's right. So community journalism is a pretty new thing at Sifted, and we've been covering things like toxic workplaces, the war for talent. Now, in the next few months, we have got topics like discrimination. We're going to be looking into what makes a good and a really bad manager, and we're going to be looking into mental health in the workplace. And we've also started running, in the last month or so, an Agony Aunt series, where we ask founders to send in anonymously any startup problems that they have. And we'll then reach out to three or so experts in the industry and get some top-notch advice. Super cool. So if anyone has any burning topics they want us to cover or ask our readers about or they're going through some sort of crazy thing at their startup, please write into us. You are, what is your email, Kai? It is Kai, that's K-A-I, at sifted.eu. But you've been super busy, Kai. You also wrote a really great article on secondhand fashion marketplaces this week. These are apps like Depop and Vinted, which are super popular. And they claim that they're helping us save the planet by encouraging us to buy fewer clothes and actually just buy used clothes. So what's the problem here? Well, fashion is a huge issue for sustainability. And producing new clothes, making new shoes and hats and T-shirts accounts for a massive 10% of global carbon emissions, which is more than international shipping and flights combined. So there's no getting away from the fact that new fashion is a humongous drain on the environment. And apart from having to learn how to weave your own clothes made of hemp, buying secondhand fashion is a good way to go. But reducing the environmental impact of clothes in the fashion industry in general is much more than just about keeping clothes in circulation for longer. So what's the actual problem with these used clothes marketplaces? Why do they also have an environmental impact? 
Well, there tends to be two different two different models of secondhand fashion marketplaces. On the one hand, you've got managed marketplaces, which buy clothes in from brands or consumers and then process them at warehouses before selling them on to other consumers. And you've got startups like Northern Ireland's Responsible, the UK's Thrift, and Sweden's Selpie. And these startups are much newer, and they've only raised a few million from VCs so far. Then on the other hand, you have got peer-to-peer marketplaces, and these are much bigger startups that you probably would have heard of, like Vinted and Depop. And these startups pretty much just provide a platform for consumers to sell to other consumers. Now, the biggest sustainability issue for these startups is shipping. Sometimes they're shipping from one side of the world to another side of the world. They're using aeroplanes. They're using cars. And this is all really bad for the environment, obviously, right? So are there any solutions on the table to help this? Yeah, well, look, in terms of shipping, there's all these standard conversations around electric vehicles. And for these secondhand marketplaces, that would require partnering with a courier service. And there's one problem with that, which is that there is no courier service that is fully electric right now. Damn. Well, I said a bad word. <laughs> but I guess another issue that you that I thought and I wasn't really aware of that you wrote of in the piece was about the warehouse footprint as well. Because if you were talking about these managed marketplaces, they need a place to store all these clothes before they ship them out to people. So what are you know, how are they dealing with the environmental impact of that side of things? Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, they buy in all sorts of clothes in all sorts of different conditions. So they need to sew them back together or clean them or wash them before they sell them on. And these warehouses are a massive drain. You know, you've got loads of cleaning products. You've got employees commuting to and from them. You've got the lighting. You've got the waste management. All of this stacks up, right? And both Thrift and Responsible, who I spoke to for the piece, said that measuring the environmental impact of the warehouse is one of their major concerns. And they're doing things like changing their electricity provider to someone who only provides renewable electricity or offsetting their emissions somehow. So there are a bunch of different things that that these smaller managed marketplaces can do with their warehouses. It's a very different problem, though, for peer-to-peer marketplaces who don't have warehouses because consumers just sell to each other. But what they do have is thousands of employees that need somewhere to work. And they've both made commitments, both Vinted and Depop have made commitments to power their servers and run their offices on, on renewable energy. So I'm feeling now hearing this that maybe I shouldn't even be buying from these marketplaces anymore. And then on top of that, there's the issue of, you know, it's so easy, it's so cheap to buy from them now that it almost kind of encourages people to buy even more fashion. So are these marketplaces really having an impact? Yeah, this is one of the big problems. And a lot of people are asking the question of whether or not this is actually reducing consumption. Because if the amount of secondhand clothes that people are buying goes up, that's also going to mean the amount of clothes that fast fashion is producing is going up. And the amount of clothes that fast fashion produces is going up. And it will double, or the market will double in size by 2030. However, the sector is really new, the second-hand fashion marketplace sector. And while Vinted and Depop have been knocking around on the scene for quite a few years and have you know, got millions of people that use them, managed marketplaces that have a little bit more control over the packaging that they use and the way that they ship their clothes are very new. So there's a lot of work to be done on that side. And I think it's also important to recognize that consumers are changing their habits. Consumers are becoming far more aware of the environmental impact of their 
of their purchases. Well, I know that Sifted loves a good charity shop, so we'll definitely be covering more in this section. It'll be really interesting to see kind of what new business models or what new companies emerge out of Europe in this space. Thank you, Kai. Well, that's all we have time for today. That was a certainly a jam-packed episode. Today's episode was recorded in Dream Factory, as I said at the beginning. They're a content creation house for startups based in Shoreditch. They've very kindly offered Sifted Readers a discount code, which gives you £300 off the £3,000 yearly membership to Dream Factory. And all you need to do is just use the Sifted code SIFTED300 when you go and try and book a tour or if you apply for membership. So that's Sifted 300, just like that intense movie about Roman soldiers. <laughs> and if you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can go to sifted.eu or you can find us on Twitter, on LinkedIn. And if you're going to be in Tallinn on May 3rd, we have a very exciting event. You can get a ticket on our website and even get a free one if you are a verified founder or a senior startup leader. And if your inbox needs any more newsletters, Sifted has a bunch of them and you should check them out. They're really good. And please do let us know what you think of the Sifted podcast. And I am very thankful that I don't work for a publication called Clutch. <laughs> I'm so thankful for that too, Aina. Thanks for joining us today. 